Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 1. The title of the message, very simply, is Justification. We're in a series of 10 messages. The, this is number 7 in the 10-message series. And the, <clears throat> the title of the series is Believe This. These are doctrines, matters that really we should believe, we should understand, we should have and hold and, and uh, have in our hearts. These are things that guide your understanding uh, of the Word of God and of Christianity. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's a short enough verse that we can read that together. Would you read it with me? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I got about a third of you. Let's see if I can get all of you. Let's do it again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. On October the 3rd, 2009, Paul and Ray, Paul Ray and Lindsay, uh, Lindsay Emmy, were married. They recently celebrated their seventh anniversary. That's my son, Paul, and uh, my daughter-in-law, Lindsay. The way that it started for them is kind of interesting. Lindsay and a group of her friends from the nursing program at FSU began attending our church. Uh, Paul had met them, all of the girls that were attending, at the student center for the Baptist Collegiate Ministries on campus. And that's part of the way that they first came to our church. The other was that Lindsay had interviewed uh, for a job on the playground. And she had talked to Mrs. Ray, and Mrs. Ray said, you should come with your friends and visit our church. She knew Paul, and one thing led to the other, and they started attending. Well, as it often is with college students and with high school students, they were nothing more than hangout friends. They just hung out, and that was fine. There was no problem with that. But after a while, Paul and Lindsay began talking, which, if I understand correctly, is preliminary to the dating stage. Uh, that's the way that I think that it goes today. You, you talk, and maybe it's texting. I, I don't know, but <clears throat> you talk, and after you go through a period of talking, then you might decide if you want to date. And sure enough, <clears throat> they thought that there might be an interest there in dating. So Paul and Lindsay went on an experimental date, uh, which is kind of redundant, but uh, they went on an experimental date <clears throat> to see if there was anything there any spark, any chance for a flame, any hope that they might really be interested in one another. And uh, they went to a, what I I remember as being a very expensive restaurant here in town, and and Paul uh, luckily had a job, and I didn't have to pay for that. So they went to a very expensive restaurant and and, uh, ordered and sat down and spent the evening together And after the evening, Paul drove her back to where she was living, uh, either on or I think near the campus, and uh, they discussed whether or not there was anything there, and and there wasn't. And uh, so they said, no, not really, it's just a nice dinner. And uh, so they, they went on, got on with their lives. However, somewhere along the way, for some reason, they decided to take another look into this. 
And at this time, the second time that they had a date uh, at a much less expensive place, I don't think he's ever taken her back to an expensive place like that since, but uh, <clears throat> they decided that they would start dating. So they did. They began to, to date. And at some point, Paul said to himself, <clears throat> I have to spend the rest of my life with her. I have to marry her. She is the one for me. Now, when Paul made that decision, it totally changed how I looked at Lindsay. Completely changed how I looked at her. Paul, in fact, all of my sons, always had standing with me. Sometimes, to be honest with you, the standing goes up and down based on who they are and uh, what they're doing at the time. Right now, Paul still has good standing. The other two I don't like. Lindsay, however, was a girl who came to church with her friends from the Baptist, uh, from FSU. I didn't know her. We didn't share very much in common, maybe really nothing in common other than the fact that we both knew Paul. However, there came a day when she said yes to Paul. He proposed marriage to her, and she said yes. And when she said yes, everything changed. She gained new status with me. When Lindsay and Paul were married on October the 3rd in 2009, she took a name that had been mine all of my life. I had always been Randy Ray. My last name had always been Ray, but her last name had always been Emmy. Yet on that day in October in 2009, she said, I will take the name of Paul, which is the name of his father. Now, she remained her own person, but now there was a special relationship with me because I was the father of the son. She now had, and still has, standing with me, the father. Now, the reason that she has standing with me, the father, is because she identified with my son. And when she identified with my son, she became a whole different person to me. She's a wonderful wife to Paul. She's very, very smart. She's such a smart girl. She's a very smart girl. She's a great mom to Emerson and Avery. And to Jan and me, she's a a fine daughter-in-law. But all of those things started, all of the works of their marriage for the last seven years, all of that started when she said yes to the son. Now, that's not exactly like justification, but it's something like justification. We are justified with the Father when we say yes to the Son. Justification is the imputed righteousness of God. It's important to have righteousness in our lives, but it's difficult 
from our own standpoint. In fact, it's impossible from our own standpoint to have righteousness in our lives because Jesus said that while the righteous uh, go into eternal life, uh, Romans 3.10 teaches that no one is righteous, not even one. So in order to go to heaven, to be in the presence of the Father, we must have righteousness, but we have no righteousness. And you know what else? We have no way to get righteousness. How can we gain the righteousness needed to see God? If we are not righteous, if we cannot be righteous, if we cannot do righteous things, how can we gain the righteousness to see God? Well, it is imputed is the theological word. Assigned is a word that we would all understand. It is assigned to us at the point of salvation. Righteousness is never earned. Righteousness is assigned to us. Now, whether or not we have been justified determines how the Father looks on us and whether or not we have had God's righteousness assigned to us. When we have a relationship to the Son, it gives us standing with the Father. When we take the Son, we get the Father. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Without the imputed righteousness of Christ on your life or on my life, there are several things we cannot do. We cannot approach the throne of grace without the imputed righteousness, without the assigned righteousness of Christ on our lives, we can't approach the throne of, the throne of grace. <clears throat> Without that assignment on our lives, we cannot hope to have eternal life or in any way <clears throat> think that we could prosper or live a Christian life. It's only through justification, right standing with the Father because we have received the Son, it's only through justification that we have any of this, that we have any credibility, <clears throat> that we have any status with God. A, a good explanation, not the best, but a good explanation of justification are these words, just as if I had never sinned. Now that's a good way to understand it. What is justification? Well, the Father looks at me just as if I had never sinned. That's not a bad way to look at it. However, it needs something. We are not justified because sin is taken away, although it is. We are justified when we are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When sin is taken away from our lives at justification and we are given the righteousness of Christ, then we are justified before God. If justification was only the removal of sin, then we would sin again and lose our justification. What if everybody here today said, 
I mean, the slate was made clean. We had a confessing, confession of sin. I mean, everybody here. I said, today is the day that we're going to confess our sin before God. We're going to all enter into the real confessional, which is our prayer closet, and we're going to get before God, and we're going to confess all of our sin, and we are going to be absolutely free from our sin because he has forgiven us our sin. And we all get that done, and we go out of the service by 1130, even before that. All of us would have had sin back in our lives, every last one of us. So it can't be that justification is just the removal of sin. It keeps coming back and back and back and back. Justification removes the sin, the negative of sin, but it adds the positive of Christ's righteousness in our lives. Very, very important that you see that. It's as though you, you say, okay, he has erased now everything, all of my sin, but in the middle of my life, he has placed the seal of Jesus Christ so that when he sees me, he not only no longer sees my sin, <clears throat> he sees the seal of Jesus Christ in my life. Now, that is vital to our understanding of eternal security. And so this is what we're looking at this morning, justification. This is what I hope to get you to understand and to really believe, justification. And we're going to see about, I think, five points. First of all, let's start with the prophecy of justification. There is a prophetic aspect of justification in that it was prophesied before it was delivered. Isaiah 53, 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now here in Isaiah is a prophecy of justification. Were people in the Old Testament days justified on the same basis as those of us who are living today in this church age? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, And I'm going to maybe explain this today in a way that I've, I've never really explained before, or at least to the degree I've not explained it before. The rules of salvation have never changed. Never changed. Don't ever say to somebody, well, in the Old Testament, they were saved by keeping the law. That's not true. No one was ever saved by keeping the law. Well, in the Old Testament days, they had uh, sacrifices, and that's how they were saved. Not true. That's never how anyone was saved. The law nor the sacrifices, neither of them saved. They only showed people their need for salvation. I know that it's difficult to understand this, but, but please try to appreciate this. This, if I say anything today that's worth remembering, I'm about to say it, okay? So get your pencils and papers ready. I'm about to say something I think that's worth, in fact, I know it's worth remembering. Please understand this. With God, a promise made is as good as a promise delivered. I'm going to say it again because I know some of you are a little slow getting your pens out. With God, a promise made is as good as as a promise delivered. In other words, prophecy is as reliable as history 
when it's the prophecy of God. <clears throat> now, let's go back to the good illustration for you, the presidential elections. You've seen the polls, right? The polls are all over the place, right? And <clears throat> in addition to the polls, I understand that there is something in, in England called the line. There is a line on the, um, <clears throat> on the, uh, the, the presidential race and who will win the presidential race. There is a line. Now, here's basically what they're doing. They are prophesying who they believe is going to win. They are prophesying who they think is going to get this race. You can see them. You can see them on all of the news channels. You, <clears throat> you can see all of these people prophesying who they think are going to win. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think that just because they've made the prophecy that it's absolutely going to happen exactly the way that they said it? No. Now, it could, <clears throat> but we don't know that it will. And we don't know that it will, and, and we won't know that it will until after November the 8th, Un unless it happens to be a Gore and Bush year, and, you know, then it'll be sometime in December. <clears throat> but we don't know. We don't know until it's over. We, we don't know what those who are prophesying in this election, whether or not they're right about it, until <clears throat> the election becomes history. Is that, nod your head, is that true? Okay, right. Now here's, here's the, the adjustment. When we're thinking of God, <clears throat> we don't have to wait until prophecy to be becomes history to know whether or not it's going to be true. Why? Because God is absolutely true. He is sovereign. God knows and God does. Prophecy is prior history when we think about it in the uh, uh, context of God. With God, a promise made is as good <clears throat> as a promise kept. Absolutely as good as a promise delivered. Remember the prophecy of the Redeemer? It goes all the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of, of your uh, life. <clears throat> I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. We've already read about that. Who is her offspring? Her offspring was Jesus Christ. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's the first prophecy of the Redeemer after sin had come uh, in, into mankind. As soon as that prophecy was made, the gift of salvation was as sure and real as though Jesus Christ had already been born of a virgin, died on the cross, and was risen from the grave. Now I will tell you this. That is such a powerful truth right there that if you were Pentecostals, you'd be standing up on your pew shouting right now. That is a powerful truth. As soon as God said to Satan, this woman that you have beguiled, there's an offspring coming and he will do you in. He will undo, overcome, override all that you have done on this day. As soon as he said that, 
then the plan of salvation was as sure as though Jesus had already ascended back into heaven. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read that all of those people from the Old Testament were justified by faith. Faith in what? Faith in the promise. Promise of what? Promise of a redeemer. A redeemer from what? A redeemer from our sins. Who was that? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has uh, forgiven us all of our sins. And when we receive him, when we identify with him, when we take his name and become a Christian, just like Lindsay became a Ray, because we have received the son, we have status with the father. Just one person say amen. Okay, I got more than one. That is phenomenal. That's huge. Bigger than huge. They were justified on the prophecy of the promise, not the historical record that we have. The same promise. Look, look look here. Let me show it to you. I've done this before. Here's the promise. Here's the promise, okay? Here's the promise of the Redeemer. We're, We're back in the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden and, and, and Adam falls and, and Eve is beguiled and Satan is told, you're, you're, this is, it's not going to go well for you. That woman that you beguiled, she shall have a, an offspring. That offspring will crush you. There's the promise of the Redeemer right there, right there. There's the promise. Now look here. The promise is still over there at the center of the historical record, so to speak. There's a promise. But when it was made here, good. When Abraham looked at it, good. When Isaac looked at it, good. When, when Malachi looked at it, good. When all of the Old Testament saints, Isaiah looked at it, good. It was all good, all good. Why? Because God had promised, and the promise made is as good as the promise delivered. All of it's good, good, good. Then Mary conceived of the Holy Spirit, and the baby was born, and the baby's the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And Jesus lived this brief period of of time, this slice of time where he did no sin. He came here to redeem us from our sin, and he lived there. This was the promise that had been made way back there and confirmed and confirmed and confirmed. And every sacrifice, every thing that was done in the law, every one of them was pointing to the promise that was to come. There's a promise coming. Listen, have faith in the promise. Have faith in the promise. What's the promise? The promises of a Savior, a promises of redemption. Have faith in the promise. Have faith in the promise. And sure enough, they, those who were redeemed had faith in the promise. Then came the Jesus years. And Jesus finally died on the cross for our sins. And he rose on the third day. And he walked on this earth for 40 days and ministered again in his resurrection life. Then he ascended to heaven and his next promise is that he will come to us. Then comes the day in which we live. And we work that day from, uh, uh, from 
A.D. Uh, 10 and 100 and uh, 200 and, and 1950 when I was born and, and uh, uh, 2009 when Paul and Lindsay uh, were married all the way to today and we're still believing the promise. We believe the promise because it is the promise, not because it's history, but because it's the promise of God. It was the promise of God before it was history. It was the promise of God while it was developing in the historical line. It's still the promise of God today. And someday when we are in heaven, we will be in heaven based on the promise. That's why we're standing on the promises. That's it. That's it. That's the, that's the thing. Maybe this will help a little bit. We'll, we'll go back to what we just talked about. The pioneer of justification. James 2, 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Do you see the word counted there? When Abraham believed the promise to come, righteousness was counted for him to the same degree as a believer today. I was saved when I was eight years old. When I was eight years old, I put my faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. I did so in the simplest and humblest and most innocent of ways. I said, God, I'm a little boy. I don't know what to do. Please save me. Now listen to me. I got saved exactly the way that Abraham got saved. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. I believed God as an eight-year-old boy. And can I tell you this? I'm still believing God, and when I put my faith in God, I, I received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What did Abraham have to do in order to, to gain the status of justified? He simply believed God. I want you to look at these verses from Romans chapter 4. Romans 4.20. No belief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words uh, it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised the dead, uh, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up from our trespasses and raised for our justification. Nothing made Abraham waver from believing the promises of God. Now that's a very interesting prospect. Remember earlier when I said, with God a promise made is as good as a promise delivered? That's a very important it, it is certainly important to matters of salvation, but it's important to all parts of our Christian walk. Whatever God has promised in his word is as good as delivered in our lives. Whatever it is, because with God, a promise made is as good as a promise delivered. Do you count the promises of God made as good as the promises of God delivered? Well, I know this is true, and I know what the preachers preached yesterday or last Sunday or three weeks ago, or I know what the preacher preached is true because it's, it's true in my own life. I, I know that, that God made that promise, and I know it's true because it happened in my own life. Let me tell you something. Whether it happened in your life or not, it's true. Because with God, a promise made is as good as a promise delivered. 
I love this. Somebody said, you can't break the promises of God leaning on them. I love that. The the great missionary William Carey said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. We should believe all the promises of God to the degree that we believe the promise of our justification by grace through faith. So we've seen now the prophecy of justification, the pioneer of justification. Let's look now at the provision of it. One of the more confusing aspects of justification or being made right with God is that people think that there's something they should be able to do. There's something they should be able to do. I, I have heard both candidates talk about eternal life. And both candidates talked about a way that they should live in order to have eternal life. I, I heard Hillary do that at the, the uh, was it the Al Smith dinner? I heard her talk about it at the Al Smith dinner. Said that very thing. Quite honestly, I heard the Donald say the same thing in, in person in Orlando in a, a meeting that I was in and he was there. Neither one of them's right. That's not the way that salvation comes. We cannot be justified by works any more than we can be justified by keeping the law of Moses. Just can't do it. This, the, the law did not and could not provide justification, neither can works provide justification. Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith. The the justification promised by the Father was delivered by the Son. It wasn't delivered by our works. It was delivered by the Son. Acts chapter 13 and verse 38, let it be known to you, Therefore, brothers, and through that through this man, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Nothing else and no one else delivers justification. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Do you know why? Because nothing or no one else can deliver justification. It isn't based on water baptism, but you're a Baptist. You love water baptism. Sure I do, but you can't get justified by water baptism. It it can't be, you, you can't get it by tithing, but you're a preacher. You love for people to tithe. Oh, I really do. But you can't buy your way to heaven. There's nothing that you can do. It doesn't depend on rights rituals, sacraments, it is provided by Jesus Christ alone. The great difference between Bible-believing Christianity and other world religions, and actually some strains of Christianity, is the truth of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That in Him it is done. That when He on the cross of Calvary said, it is finished, it was really finished. What was finished? What was said back in, in the Garden of Eden? The promise made was finished. It is finished. Absolutely finished. 
Evangelical Christians believe that the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary completed the work of redemption and made possible justification. And those religions, even Christian faiths, adding any necessity of human works, or as I said, rites, rituals, or sacraments, making that a part of it, cannot believe that justification is based on Christ alone. Do you get that? If you say, I believe that you have to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and get saved and live a good life, then you go to heaven, you are not understanding what Jesus said. It's one thing. It's like Curly said on on the movie, I forgot its name, one thing. It's just one thing. And that is the justification of Jesus Christ. It is vital that we see that Jesus is the only source for our justification. Now, we've seen justification's prophecy. We've seen its pioneer. We've seen its provider. There are two more, and we're done. Here's the fourth one, the power of justification. What is the reward for being justified? If you get justified, what is the power of it? Well, back to Romans, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. This is significant. It's significant because John 3, 18, which is a cousin to John 3, 16, says that those who believe not are condemned already. But those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Have you ever seen a building that was condemned? You ever seen a building that was condemned and and it was good for nothing but to be torn down? How many of you remember that building that's on the screen right now? Raise your hand. That's Sunland or Sunnyland it was referred to. It's over near where FDLE used to be. It's the the old hospital. I don't know whether it was Sunnyland or Sunland. They called it both. But it, it became a condemned building. And, and this time of year around Halloween, teenagers used to go over there at night. They weren't supposed to, but they did. Um, my, my sons never went over there. <clears throat> never did. Uh, until they got into their 20s, and then they told me about when they went over there when they were teenagers. Look, it is now, you ready for this? Victoria Gardens Apartments. That's what's sitting on it. Victoria Garden Apartments is there now. They said it was haunted. They said it was spooked and all of those things. But as far as the city of Tallahassee was concerned, the Sunnyland building was worthless. In fact, it was worse than worthless. It was condemned. It, it was good for nothing but to be destroyed. Now, think about God considering you in the same way that the city of Tallahassee thought about Sunland. Those who receive him not are condemned already, John 3, 18 says. 
worthless, good for nothing but to be destroyed, condemned of no value at all, waiting to be destroyed in a never-ending place of torment called hell. If you are justified by Christ, however, the Bible says there is no condemnation. It's quite the opposite. There is eternal life and heaven. That's the power of being justified. However, there is more. There is abundant life. There's victory over sin. There's a direction for God's will in your life and so very much more. It's magnificent. When, look, if you hear that, that a Bible-believing preacher is going to preach on justification, you need, to, you need to put on your shouting shoes and get to church because it's a big, big thing. Now, we've seen justification's prophecy, and we've seen justification's uh, uh, pioneer and, and the, the provider and the power of justification. How do people get to justification? Well, there's one more, and that is the path of justification. Do you recall the verse we read about Abraham and his justification? Here's what the Bible said. He believed God. And he was justified. Did you see the other verses in that passage? Look look at verse 23 of Romans 4. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up from our trespasses, raised for our justification. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then there is this passage, Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The Bible says that Abraham believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's what we must do as well. We must believe. Now, believing involves two great gifts and one simple step. Let me tell you, and I'm done. First of all, There is the gift of grace. The benefits that we enjoy and will enjoy as a result of being part of the family of God come with no hint of deserving whatsoever. Not none at all. None. None, 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 none. Well, I think when I get to the end of this life, I've lived a good life. God's going to weigh the good against the bad. When God weighs the good against the bad, I think I'll be all right. Well, if you want to go to hell, you'll be all right. I mean, that's kind of tough, but it's the truth. You can't go to heaven by trying to be good enough to go to heaven. There's none righteous. No, not one. The the only way that we can go to heaven is to be the recipients of God's grace. The realization is vital to a person's ability to trust the Lord, even please Him. Justification doesn't come because we deserve it. I don't deserve to be justified. You don't deserve to be justified. Man, my sweet mama, we're burying her today. If anybody deserved to go to heaven, she did. Nobody deserves to go to heaven. 
We go by one way, one way only. Jesus Christ, He justifies us. It's a gift of grace and it's an act of mercy. If grace is God's unmerited favor, then mercy is God's unmerited forgiveness. When we forgive, when we give forgiveness and give it some thought, we come to realize that nobody deserves forgiveness. If you are, if, just think of the nature of forgiveness. First of all, the word give is right in the middle of the word forgiveness. You have to give forgiveness. Forgiveness is not earned. Forgiveness is not deserved. Well, if that's, since you put it that way, then I'll forgive you. No, 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 no. I mean, is that how you go to, the, go to God? Lord, I've done the best that I could, and, and you know that I've been faithful to you. And, and uh, here's what I, I'm, I'm going to ask you now, God. I want you to just take a look at my life, and, and I hope I'm worthy of forgiveness. And God says, well, you're not, and you don't even understand it. If you're waiting on somebody to be worthy of your forgiveness, then you'll never forgive them. Because that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is just forgiven. It's giving it. It's mercy. It is giving it. When forgiveness comes, it's forgiven. It's not deserved. So you think about those people that you, you are holding out on forgiving. I'll give you, a, I'll give you an interesting I ought not to say this probably, but years ago uh, when I was playing golf uh, one day and it was just me and Coach Bowden, we got in a pretty serious conversation about what happened to him at Florida State at the end, you know, at the end. And pretty much everybody had kind of come to the consensus that, you know, they kind of, hmm. I mean, it doesn't matter how old he is or whatever. They just kind of, they, they kind of messed him up. And so we were kind of talking about that. And, and <clears throat> he looked at me and he said, and, and those, those steely blue eyes, and he, he turned around and he looked at me sitting in the golf cart. He said, Randy, I've made a decision about that. I've just decided that I'm forgiving him. That's just, I'm just going to forgive him. doesn't matter. I'm not going to live with that. I'm just forgiven. Anybody that had a part of that, I'm forgiving them. Now, see, that's a beautiful illustration of what I'm talking about. Because there were some folks probably in his mind that didn't deserve forgiveness. Probably in our mind, too. But he said, I just, I'm going to just forgive them. That's it. With the path to justification is God's grace, God's mercy, and simply our faith. The only role we play in justification is the one that Abraham played, we believe. 
To believe in God, we must turn from ourselves and trust Christ only. That's repentance. One of the misunderstandings of faith is thinking that it's a work. Not even faith can be considered a work of redemption. <clears throat> and here's, here's why. <clears throat> because faith itself is given to us. Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Faith is a gift from God. God has given every man a measure of faith. You say, well, he didn't give me very much. Well, fine. Just act on the faith that he's given you. Take the first step of faith, which is to believe. Say yes to the Son. Look, when, when people get married, they get married in all kinds of situations and settings. I have participated in some phenomenal weddings where lots and lots and lots of money was spent. And I have participated in a wedding in my office with the bride and the groom. I've participated in those weddings. One of them had a great measure of pomp and circumstance. The other had just none, hardly. Just an I do. But the I do was enough. And could I tell you that when you say yes to Jesus, that's enough. Place your faith in Christ alone. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ.